Black Doctors podcast highlights the stories of minority professionals with the goal of inspiring others. Season two provides more episodes and features a wider variety of professions. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and share with others because the next generation can't be what they don't see. Tune in every Monday to hear our stories told by us. Hello and welcome back to the Black Doctors podcast. This week, I'm honored to be sitting down and talking with Dr. Danielle Harrison. She's a psychiatrist practicing in Washington, D.C., and she is the program director for the psychiatry residency program at Howard University Hospital. She was also my resident when I was a medical student studying at Howard University College of Medicine. Dr. Harrison, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Dr. Bradley Stephen. I'm very proud of you now that you're on the other side. So thank you for inviting me. I have really enjoyed watching your career blossom and seeing you in this position of leadership and so much things that you're doing for the Black community and for those that suffer from mental health conditions. Well, thank you. You know, it's it's challenging, challenging being in the community. It's challenging supporting the community, standing up for our students and our residents, but um, you know, I'm here for it. As a psychiatrist attending physician, what is a typical day like for you? So I'm, I guess I'm pretty atypical, so I don't have the typical day of a psychiatrist, I guess in the traditional sense as what people really think about as a psychiatrist, as then you like go to their office and it's an outpatient setting and you discuss your issues there. I primarily work in the hospital and I'm a consultation liaison psychiatrist, so that's a fellowship and boarded subspecialty of psychiatry. So I work everywhere, everywhere, literally anywhere in the hospital from the ER, the ICU, labor and delivery, all the medical floors, surgical floors. I even go down to dialysis sometimes to see any patients who have psychiatric conditions who are on another service and being treated by a different specialty or those who previously didn't have a psychiatric disorder but have some type of psychiatric manifestations from their current medical condition, be that delirium, be that dementia, postpartum depression, um, psychosis, mania, things like that. So my day is not typical at all. I can tell you that um, it's always an exciting day on consults and psychiatry. So yeah, that's what I do. Awesome. And how many patients do you see a day? Oh man, it could, it depends. Um, sometimes we could just have four consults. Sometimes we could have 12 or 14 consults. It really depends on the day, um, the time. Also, if I have happened to also be covering my telehealth services now since the COVID-19 pandemic, I'll, I could possibly have six or seven patients to see via tele and then also cover the emergency room. So whoever comes in from eight to four Wow. And then is there a call component of that on the weekends or how does that work? Yes, there is a call. It really depends on where you work. Um, But particularly in my hospital, I'm on call every other, a weekend, every other month. And then then how do you work with your teams? You have residents on your service, medical students. How's your interaction with them? Yes, I have a wonderful, outstanding, always learning um, consult team that's comprised of at least one psychiatry resident, could be two, could also include a neurology resident, depending on who's rotating, could also include an internal medicine resident. 
And then I also have anywhere upwards of two to five medical students with me at a time. So I have a, a pretty big team. That's awesome. And how long have you been in practice? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not new to this, but I grew to this. However, I'm a fairly young attending and probably the youngest psychiatry program director, definitely the youngest black psychiatry program director in this country. But I finished residency in 2016. But so do we count residency and post-residency? Well, whatever. I finished residency in 2016. (laughs) And so we're now in 2020. So four years of doing my own thing. I also did fellowship in that time and worked part-time as an attending as well. So yeah, about four years of independent practice outside of uh, residency training. Yeah, well, hard work definitely pays off. Indeed, or so they tell me. Yeah, and then speaking of hard work, so at some point, Dr. Harrison was not Dr. Harrison. You decided to pursue this field in healthcare and in medicine. At what point in your life did you make that decision? Oh, man. I think that, like, I had, like, a top three when I was a little kid about what I wanted to hmm. uh, on my list was a doctor, an ice skater, and a fish. But then I learned that um, it wasn't really possible for me to become a fish, and I really wasn't built for this ice skating life. So then I, you know, narrowed it down to a doctor. And I also really wanted to do, like, I was into, I'm, like, into all, like, crime things, like true crime. So true crime stories, law and order, mm-hmm. CSI, all into that. So I wanted to either be a doctor or like a forensic scientist. But then I think it really was solidified for me when I realized that there's no no black doctors in my family. And I did have one black pediatrician when I was a kid, so I knew that it was something that I could attain. Mm-hmm. But I think that when I really realized there wasn't and I think even my grandmother told me, like, you know, there just aren't any, like, she'd never seen a black doctor wow. in her in her life. And I was like, you know, this is, I think I'm more leaning to, towards the doctor side. So that's really how I decided on that. Also, my father would always say, like, he's going to be the first Dr. Harrison in our family. And unfortunately, my father passed away because of a medical complication uh-huh. that could have been avoided. <laughs> and that was when I definitely knew that medicine was going to be the specialty or the career for me. Wow. And that was before or after you started college? So my father passed away my senior year of high, high school. Wow. Sorry to hear that. Um, so as you applied to colleges, mm-hmm. you know, where did you go to undergrad and, and what was your course of study? I went to undergrad at Rutgers University in New Jersey. And at that time we had like different campuses. So I was on what they called like the black campus, (laughs) which was Livingston College at that time. And I majored in biological sciences. I minored in Africana studies, which I guess that really defines who I am. I wanted to double major. However, with all my science classes, I missed the one class (laughs) that you needed to, I needed to finish the double major in Africana studies. So yeah, that's what I did for undergrad. And then towards the end, you were applying to medical schools. And how was that process for you? So applying to medical schools, it was a pretty actually good process because Rutgers had a program called ODASIS, which was dedicated to helping pre-med and pre-dental students prepare for applying to medical school, for applying to um, for taking the MCAT. So I was in this program since I was a sophomore, and we had like tutoring 
um, weekly tutoring. We had meetings with our advisor. Dr. Khan was in charge of the program, who was from Trinidad, and would always tell us, like, eat your books, sleep with your books. <laughs> so we would be prepared. And then I, every single Saturday, I was in an MCAT class and course with, you know, a group of other black and brown students. So, yeah, that was probably the easiest or the most supportive part of my journey. Then I took the MCAT. I took the MCAT once. I was fine with my score. I applied to, I believe, 10 medical schools. I remember the first one that accepted me, even though on my interview, they tried to come for me and said, mm -hmm. they were nameless. They said, oh, I see you got a C in Bio 101. I was like, oh, we're taking it all the way back to 101? <laughs> Did you see the rest of my grades? Okay. Um, so I got accepted to six and then waitlisted on one of my medical schools. Oh, wow. I actually got accepted to and actually accepted the admission to another medical school, but then Howard called me and said, we have a scholarship for you. What are you doing? And I, you know, where I ended up. Yeah, they, they may <laughs> not come when you want them. They're always right on time. <laughs> yes, that's the Howard way. Indeed. Yep. So you went to Howard University, College of Medicine. Yes. And at what point did you decide on psychiatry? So I was very late in the medicine game and how they expect you to know things mm -hmm. and what you want to do early. I came into medical school because of that program that I told you at Rutgers. I had shadowed a infectious disease doc in New Jersey, and I decided that I wanted to work with HIV patients. That's where I saw there was a need. So I came into medical school saying I'm going to do internal medicine. I was on the like internal medicine interest group. That's what I thought I wanted to do, then cross the bridge. And I was like, whoa, I don't know about this. <laughs> the, um, the specialty that I really liked was psychiatry. I felt like I got to, like, I got to do consults. I had some inpatient time. I felt like I truly enjoyed the psychiatry rotation. However, you know there's stigma in medicine. There's stigma in the black community. I had yeah. family members who who told me that they wished that I didn't match into psychiatry. Even now I have some family members who tell people that very proudly that I'm a doctor, but they don't say that I'm a psychiatrist. Mm. Um, it was not until I think really ERAS time that I was like, I have to really make this decision for myself and where I feel like I, um, I want to be. So I applied to medicine, med psych, and psychiatry programs. And then I went on mostly psychiatry interviews. I had some struggles with step one. So internal medicine was not necessarily the most forgiving mm -hmm. for that. And so I definitely got more psychiatry interviews and more empathy and support, I felt like, from psychiatry. My mentor was a psychiatrist. So, yeah, in fourth year is <laughs> really when I – I already knew in third year, but in fourth year is when I was like, no, this is what I have to do no, despite whatever – regardless of whatever pushback or feedback that I get from others, this is what I want to do. And now fast forward a couple of years, you went from psychiatry resident at Howard to being the whole entire program director. What has changed <laughs> um, for you? Like looking back, what would you tell yourself when you were applying to psychiatry or what would you say to other students that are considering that field? Man, there's so much I could have said to myself. Um, back when applying, probably to allow myself some grace. Like, I spent a lot of time being unhappy and stressing about test scores. Mm -hmm. I think 
you know, that dominated my medical school experience and it really hurt me. And like my confidence as a medical student was in the gutter, like it was trash. And I think it was, and it truly was entirely because of the culture about these scores and how yeah. important they are and what you can do and who you can be. And I wish that I, but I don't know if, what could I say to myself? Because that is again, the culture of medicine. Mm -hmm. um, what helped me was going to therapy, which I started going to therapy in medical school because of just my extreme test taking anxiety, my just generalized anxiety period, um, which developed, I mean, I was always like kind of nervous ish. Yeah. But yeah, it became completely exacerbated and full blown in medical school. So I think maybe if I had gone to therapy earlier, like first year MS1 or MS2, maybe I could have tackled these things. I think I would have told myself to just allow myself some grace and take care of myself first. But what Howard did bring me, which I appreciate now, more than ever is a strong network of friends mm -hmm. absolutely that is that are really like my family even when i returned to howard recently as faculty like they're like hey like you know it's just like <laughs> a feeling that you that you never that you can't remember it's like some faculty were like when are you are you graduating this year i'm like right. pause guys <laughs> like <laughs> i'm a whole attending now i mean there are pluses and minuses but i think really just like caring for myself what should have been more of a priority yeah i think it's so important and so many lessons that we can learn along the way and i mean looking back i definitely know i struggled with some uh some uh lows and some highs in medical school to the point that you know i had some anxiety and and probably some depression definitely at times that i ignored right right i think that we all do i think that that's an unfortunate consequence of this field. Like you're, I saw a post on Twitter last night that was like, why do I feel like taking off a day in medical school is illegal? Like, <laughs> and I feel, I, you know, that resonated with me. I'm like, yeah, that's, but that's not just in medical school. Like right. that's the culture of medicine and residency in even being an attending for, for some of us, not all of us. Some of them live in <laughs> yeah, some, yep. some people have no problems. Um, no problem. With the, the current state of events and folks are going to be applying to residency programs and they're going to be interviewing. A lot of interviews are not in person. They're on Zoom or, or online. What tips or recommendations or, or things would you say to students that are nervous about this new uh, normal for us? So I know that students are nervous about this and so are some program directors, but I'm actually excited about this because I think it's going to level the playing field. Hmm. We have, we have a system in this country, but in this field of medicine that really um, favors privilege. And I think that if you don't have the funds to apply to all of these programs, if you don't have the funds to fly to this place and this place in the past, to interview in these different locations, to travel here, to stay here, to find um, hotels or Airbnbs or whatever it is, you're at some, you're at a disadvantage. Mm -hmm. So I think now that everyone has to, I don't know about other specialties, but for psychiatry, we have to only do 
virtual interviewing, like now there's there's more opportunity for you to put yourself out there. And I think that if anything is a silver lining of this pandemic and this racial and social injustice, it's that people are, even if they're, even if it's just performative or even if it's just for numbers of inclusion, are having to reconcile and examine their diversity and their number of URMs in their programs. And they're having to answer to that because the whole country is seeming like they have to answer to it. So I feel like this is a time that marginalized and URM students can really say, hello, I'm here. <laughs> Don't make any excuses. I'm not here for your coded language and know that I am here on the back end. Me, Dr. Harrison, pushing them every single time. Every time I hear anything, I'm like, what did you say? Yeah. What? Oh, that that's oh. uh that's amazing. That's like actually a great way to to look at it and and yeah, hopefully we this this cultural shift continues. And speaking of uh using your platform, because you are on Twitter at a doc named Danny. Did I say that right? Yes, I am on Twitter at a doc named Danny. Same thing for Instagram. It's funny that I start like made a Twitter, I feel like in twenty fourteen because of this community outreach program I had. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, This is you know, this is not for me. But some of my colleagues said that, you know, please come back and, you know, tweet and join. Like, we need more voices, Black academic voices in medicine. And I decided to return, I guess, in 2019. And then really just in, I think, April of 2020, um, have a public Instagram because I'm pretty you know, I'm pretty low-key, Yeah. even though it appears <laughs> that um, otherwise I'm pretty like, low-key and to myself, like I could live in my room for the whole weekend. But I felt like it's important to have visibility and silence keeps people suffering. So I want students, I want residents to know that we are out here. I've had students who said, literally someone sent me a message yesterday that said, can I connect one of my students to you? Because she said she's never seen a black psychiatrist, never met one or talked to one or anything. And I'm like, okay. So visibility is important. Even visibility is important. Sponsorship is important, but it is important that people can see us even out here on social media, just living our lives. Like what you do with the podcast. You, please. (laughs) Um, It's important that people can see us. And I'm serious. Like we can talk about, pipelines, we can talk about um, mentorship, but like I said, growing up, I had a black pediatrician, a black pediatrician at Walter Reed, actually, because my father was in the army. Yeah, and so I had a black pediatrician, and I had doctors who were mm, very diverse, so it never, it always was in my mind that it's possible, because I saw her, but that was me, and the opportunity that I had now, was that my opportunity because um, my father was in the military and I saw a physician that others didn't get to see? But the right. visibility is important, showing young students, showing we're, we need to go back to elementary, high school, that, you know, we actually exist. And this is something that if you're interested in, you can definitely achieve. You didn't even ask me that. You asked me about my Twitter. But, yeah, <laughs> that, that is why I have made myself more visible on the socials lately. Well, I absolutely appreciate your visibility and you tweet phenomenal stuff. Um, I have a Twitter account. I don't really know how to 
use it efficiently. I'm like putting in typos <laughs> when I respond, and then I can't edit what I post. You can't and... delete them. It's very annoying. Like Twitter at Twitter, please. <laughs> but I do share your statement. I'm very private and reserved, and literally came down to the point about a year and a half ago where I said, you know, at what point am I going to feel like I've arrived, I guess, or I'm more confident as an attending physician that I can use a platform and I can have visibility and I can help other people. So that's kind of what my push has been as well. I mean, this podcast is an extension of that, but it's also a kind of a cop out because fortunately I have amazing guests that I let talk most of the time. <laughs> well, you have arrived. And I think that's, that's another thing. Like we think we haven't arrived I don't know. I mean, I do remember, I think, Dr. Bradley, you're two years behind me in um, medical school. But when I see you, I'm like, look at this guy out here saving the world, posting about it. Like, people need to see this. I need, You know what? I need to see it because sometimes I'm not motivated. And we all need to see each other. Again, that is the that is what's priceless about an institution like Howard. Now, while we have struggles, while we have some differences in the availability or limitations on resources, what it is like to go to a HBCU, um, particularly for medical school, mm -hmm. to see Black physicians, like majority Black physicians and Brown physicians, is something that I think that I can say I took for granted. Yes. And I had to learn from my friends who are at other medical schools who were like, um, can I come for your day option? Can we <laughs> oh, come, yeah. Can we, come, can we come to the smoker? Like, when are y'all, I mean, like other, you know, medical schools in the DMV, my friends who were like, because we, you know, this ain't it. Like, we right. need some, we need some diversity. We need something for the culture. And um, just having this network, being able to, say like oh yeah i have a if someone asked me something like do you know a, a black male anesthesiologist i'm like yeah i can say that do you know a black or black male or female or non-binary um OBGYN? Mm -hmm. like i can say that and pathologist like i know who to go to and i can say that because of my howard networks and also um from training in baltimore with my uh baltimore networks of you know just young black physicians who are out here doing it so we have to really give ourselves credit um, mm -hmm. and appreciate the shoulders that we stand on and the ancestors that uh, and legends who have our back. Absolutely. Yeah. You don't really know what you have till it's gone. And then leaving the Howard community was like, whoa, what, what is this world? Exactly. It was, it's a culture shock. And that for me, it came because, you know, I did residency at Howard, but for me doing fellowship, I was like, where am I? Yeah. Like, it's happening. Speaking of social media and Twitter, one of your tweets that resonated with me recently kind of referred to the Elijah Wood situation, although there's other situations in which law enforcement organizations and uh, medical services are administering ketamine to folks on the, on the street. Your tweet reads, I'm struggling with physicians, which are their specialty, who say that excited delirium is a medical diagnosis or condition. You say it's a term used by law enforcement officers to describe agitation and distress to justify the use of force, ketamine, and apparently spit hoods. 
Um, can you speak to on, on that issue? It's something that's really affected me as I use ketamine a lot in my practice as an anesthesiologist. But when right, they as an anesthesiologist, <laughs> key word as an anesthesiologist. Yeah. For pre and uh, and for pre surgeries, during surgeries, mm-hmm. sedation, like you as a medical professional who is boarded, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and licensed. Yes, you do. Yeah. What what um, is what is this excited delirium? I know I never heard of it before reading about Elijah Wood, but can you speak on that to psychiatrists? So excited delirium is actually not a diagnosis that's acknowledged by psychiatrists or in the DSM five, which is our diagnostic manual. It's act it's literally something that I feel like is an antiquated term that they have now morphed into a justification for using ketamine or force or sedation or honestly I've never seen this fit hood until I saw the case of Daniel Prude in mm. Rochester, New York. And that was actually what inspired my tweet because there are have been articles that have talked about excited delirium. I hear some psychiatrists, also emergency physicians and pre hospital teams like EMTs or and sometimes I don't know if you include law enforcement officers and pre-hospital teams, but using this term excited delirium, that's really, I don't know how it became this thing that it's a something that you use to describe severe agitation, which is in fact a symptom, you know, which it could be attributed to multiple different diagnoses, but delirium is definitely a diagnosis. There's hypoactive delirium, there's hyperactive delirium, there's intoxication, but what is excited delirium? And I've seen the term used for someone anywhere that ranges from someone who's not following directions and is mildly irritated to someone who might be experiencing psychosis or an acute drug intoxication. And it's interesting that excited delirium often results in death, right. but it's associated with almost you almost always some type of interaction with the police. Yeah, I'm not sure why we're continuing to use this term. It's not a medical term. Delirium is a medical term, and there is no clear definition on what excited delirium is, nor is where is the evidence-based medicine for using ketamine in the street, not by you, Dr. Bradley, (laughs) not by an anesthesiologist, but by an EMT, directed by the police for this diagnosis that's coming from police officers of excited delirium. Like, we really have to review this. There there has to be some type of answer to this. And, and this controversial diagnosis, it can't be given by untrained non-medical professionals. I don't get it. Yeah. Well, thank you again. This is why we need your voice on Twitter and social media, and we need to hear from people that look like us, and we can affect change. Well, know that even as as recently as this morning, I've gotten messages, I guess, also because of that tweet from Black forensic psychiatrists, just general psychiatrists, and pathologists who are going to work on something. Black physicians are going to work on some type of actually evidence-based or literature review to really delve into what this is and how we got to this. 
And I, but first of all, I know how we got to this, but mm-hmm. what is the answer and how we can move from, on from using this as a derived term that has been morphed and twisted from something that they used to use in like eight, the 1800s. Yeah. I'll definitely be looking forward to hearing more on that issue from those, uh, those folks. Me too. Being a, a black physician and being a psychiatrist specifically, you got to touch on this earlier. You know, there's such a lack of understanding in our community when it comes to mental health issues. I know a lot, or it seems to me like a lot has changed over the last five or, or 10 years when it comes to mental health and, and the black communities. What would you say is the uh, state of affairs with mental health and mental illness in the black communities? Um, I think that there remains a stigma about mental health and seeking mental health care, and there are many reasons for this. We are not without history. We are not an ahistoric people, and we have been dealing with multiple issues with specialties, with physicians from different specialties, but including psychiatry going back to even in the time that our parents have been alive about being diagnosed with psychotic disorders if, if you protest. Um, Jonathan Metzl has a really good book called The Protest Psychosis that describes how schizophrenia became a diagnosis for black males who were perceived as angry or aggressive and protesting or refusing to comply wow. with law enforcement, law enforcement, with physicians, whoever it is. So there's, there's that. There's also the lack of physicians, psychiatrists who look like the communities that they serve. Mm-hmm. Less than 3% of psychiatrists self-identify as Black. So wow. they don't see people who look like them. They don't see people who look like them talking about this. Someone in their family might have been wronged or misdiagnosed by the field of psychiatry and other mental health providers. So there's that taboo. There's a taboo of not that taboo or stigma. There's a stigma of not wanting to seem like you're weak or you're crazy. Um, And that's something that I even have to discuss in my own family. Like, we're not going to call people crackheads, everyone. Like, (laughs) people. And my, um, literally, like, my sister, my best friend, my boyfriend, everyone is like, oh, here she goes. I'm like, yes, because terminology is important. What we, the language we use determines how things are perceived. And things are swept under the rug or are addressed with substance use or you say you don't want to talk about this or you don't want to talk about your business out in the street or with strangers. Like you feel like this is something that families can deal with themselves and it actually ends up hurting you until we see black and brown Latinx patients as well who are not, who issues, whose issues are not addressed early because of, as I just highlighted, multiple different reasons, but also because it takes a long time for us to get to care. Mm-hmm. And you might be in an emergency situation or setting in which sometimes the police are involved. So you just see how it's just like a repetitive yeah. cycle here. And it sometimes seems like we can't win. If anything, though, I can say that you said the last five, six years, I'm going to say the like last five, six months, I have heard more people talking about their mental health issues, more policy, mm. more about that. You saw Michelle Obama discuss even how she had, has been experiencing some 
what does he call it, low-grade depression. Yeah. So I think the conversation is happening more. I think people have more screen time. So they're literally screen and podcast time. <laughs> they're literally <laughs> talking about it and listening about it more. And I feel like I've had way more, like, DMs and texts, like, can you help me with this? Even for my family members, friends, colleagues, like people I went to high school with who are like, can you help me with my family member? Do you have any, do you know what I should do for this? Like I'm suffering, I'm struggling. And I, I appreciate, well, I guess I appreciate, I appreciate that this terrible time that we're in has led to people seeking help. Mm. Yeah, that's a, a good way to put it. Um, Dr. Danielle Harrison, you have been this this very busy, troubling, trying year that we've had 2020. You've been featured on Lifetime. You've been featured <laughs> on NPR, multiple yeah. town hall meetings. And yeah. most recently, I saw you are the Woman in White Coats Hero of the Year. So congratulations for that. Oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. I, it's, it's been a lot. And... I'm I'm happy for this recognition, but you will also notice that I definitely pay it forward. So I'm like, hey, you know you want to interview me? Please talk to one of my residents. Please oh, talk wow. to one of my medical students as well because, yeah, I have to practice self-care and self-preservation, and I want the my entire goal in becoming a program director, even though it happened earlier than I thought, <laughs> is to increase the diversity, increase the number of Black psychiatrists in this country so that we have a whole gang gang out of out here a whole yes. force who can um take over and i can retire at 40 <laughs> on an island somewhere <laughs> goals yeah well the community definitely community definitely thanks you um as we wrap up anything else that you would like to say to our listeners just reach out we do exist. Black doctors are here. Black psychiatrists are here. We need you. We we can support you. We're going to try. I think even you have to recognize that sometimes you don't get the best answers from some Black physicians and you just have to understand just the systemic oppression that they've been going through as well. There are so many levels of racism and people, everyone doesn't know how to be a mentor. Everyone doesn't know how to be a sponsor or right. an advocate. But do not give up. You are going to find a way. We need you, Dr. Bradley. We need you to keep doing your podcast, to keep making your posts, all of those things so that we can continue to build and be where we need to be in this system of medicine that we have engaged with. So well said. Dr. Daniel Harrison, can you drop your socials? Let everybody know how they can get in touch with you and follow along. Yes. And follow me on Twitter at AdoptNameDanny. Same thing on Instagram at AdoptNameDanny. I say anything and everything, so don't be surprised. <laughs> but I am always here for the culture and for the people. Uh, oh, I also have a website. That's new. Um, DanielleHarrisonMD.com. So you can find me. I'm out here. But you cannot DM me on Twitter because I, gotta, I, I, I have to block the, the haters every day. Anyway, Ooh. but that's where you come from. All right, Dr. Harrison, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. No problem. My pleasure. The Black Doctors Podcast is a nonprofit volunteer passion project with the goal of inspiring all who listen. Tune in next week for another episode of the Black Doctors Podcast with Dr. Stephen Bradley, your friendly neighborhood anesthesiologist.